I got, I got shorts, every fucking color. I got designer t-shirts. I got gold bullets, motherfucking vampires. I got Scarface on repeat. Scarface on repeat, constant, y'all. I don't know what's going on here. I was just at work for real. Like I'm, I'm just trying to do my job, and I don't know. You could get a rich man if you tried. I don't want a rich man. You can't close the leads you're given. You can't close shit. You are shit. Hit the bricks, pal, and beat it, because you are going out. Did you see the memo about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have the memo right here. I just uh, forgot. But uh, it's not shipping out till tomorrow, so there's no problem. Hi, welcome to Projections Podcast Series 4. This season, we're looking at work and money on screen, critiquing modern economics through a psychoanalytic lens. We'll discuss excess, pursuit, competition, livelihood, austerity, property, and post-digital work, culminating in liberation, to touch on the various trials, tribulations, and traumas of accessing the means of survival. First, we pitch them Disney, AT&T, IBM, blue chip stocks exclusively. Companies these people know. Once we sucker them in, we unload the dog shit, the pink sheets, the penny stocks, where we make the money. It's your choice to be a skivvy, isn't it? A skivvy doesn't come to you, you go to it. Come on, let's go to Paris's. I want to rob. Hey, Sarah. Harry, how are you? Good, how are you? in the millionth week of lockdowns I haven't seen you for so long in real life I I know I cannot even remember I feel like I saw you like in February it's been so long it's ridiculous but yeah oh well at least I get to see you on Skype I know I'm, I'm and I'm so excited that we are uh, doing this series on work and money and that this is now our second episode um I'm excited to hear the feedback from our listeners about this because I feel like it's very apposite. Very apposite and it's very different from what we've done before. I think it's like the most serious kind of series that we've done so far. Um, I had a dream about this episode that oh, wow. I, last night, I had a dream that I got on the call with you and you were like, I just have nothing to say about either of these films. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, oh God, <laughs> I was counting on you to have something to say so that I would get an idea of something to say. <laughs> and it really kind of, it really sort of opened up the whole process, which was that I don't have anything to say unless you're here. <laughs> like, it was really scary. Oh my God, but I feel that way. Like, when I think about these movies on my own, I'm like, what can I realistically talk about? But like, we, I like that we just bounce off each other and we that's where like the chemistry happens, like the alchemy between us, like... And then we get, we do, I love the insights that we obtain by talking. Yeah, I think actual creativity happens in conversations. I don't Agreed. think, it, I really don't think it happens alone. Like maybe occasionally like in the shower or something, you get like the beginning <laughs> of an idea. But I think ideas get so much bigger when you've got another person. It's just the, you just need the time alone for the discipline stuff that actually sitting down and getting it done. Absolutely. It's the Socratic method, baby. <laughs> <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. 
Oh God. I only know that because I've been listening to audiobooks like every day of like philosophy. Oh my God, and... you're so good at educating yourself. I've just been <laughs> listening to true crime podcasts as usual. <laughs> oh God. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love highbrow and lowbrow. I also watched um, Love is Blind on Netflix, which is insane. Oh, Jordan told me to watch that. Is it? But then she told, then she texted back an hour later and said, "I've watched two episodes. It doesn't get better. Don't bother." <laughs> <laughs> it's very silly. It's very silly. Oh gosh. But I feel like, in a way, because um, it's 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 a good segue to actually talk about the, one of the films that we chose for today, because um, the the topic of the theme of our episode today is pursuit. Mm-hmm. And when I first saw Bl- The Bling Ring, Sofia Coppola's film, um, I didn't actually appreciate it at the time. Like, I, I felt like she was, I don't know, like, dipping her toe in the pool of, like, vacuous celebrity culture. And mm-hmm. I didn't really get anything from it. But now, actually, on a rewatch, because it's, it's actually perfect timing, because I'm currently also researching a new Freud Museum course on Sofia Coppola. And having to rewatch The Bling Ring, I have such a renewed appreciation for actually what she was trying to do. Yeah, I actually think it fits into her canon perfectly because yeah. all of her films are about celebrity culture. Like yeah. to a certain, you know, to a certain extent, they always are about a celebrity, whether that's like a French aristocratic celebrity <laughs> or like Bill Murray, or you know, they're all about some. They're all about a celebrity whose lives feel empty. Yeah. Um, which is and kind Stephen of dwarf as well in yeah. somewhere yeah, yeah like I think she's kind of uniquely positioned to know about that story that's kind of so I can totally see why this but I think um that's actually something that both the films have in common because I think most people didn't like the bling ring when it first came out and um people didn't like eyes wide shut our other film when it came out either I remember watching it I remember getting it out of a video out on a videotape at the library um, when I was about 14 and watching it while I did the ironing which is what I did for my pocket money Um, I had like this stack of ironing and eyes wide shut and I just remember like hating it but not being able to stop watching it and then watching it again and again and again throughout my life I think I must have seen it about 20 times and then liking it more and more and more every time I saw it and now I watch it every year at Christmas. The perfect Christmas film. We've been saying this. <laughs> Which oh, one do you want to start with? What do you think the order should be this week? Ah, oh, that's a good question. I feel like, what do you think? It's so difficult. I think, yeah. Um, yeah, this is like the first time I've not had really an idea of how to how to do it. But like something's telling me that Eyes Wide Shut first and the Bling Ring second. And I don't know what that like instinct is I can't I usually can give a good reason why I think something should go first or second but this I've got no idea I think that's a good instinct yeah I I, I feel that way inclined too okay cool yeah <laughs> so eyes wide shut yes so it is. Oh and my gosh. so it is and so it is you'll get that if you know you know um, if you know, you know. Okay, shall I synopsize? Yes, please. Okay. Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick, 2000. Okay. 1999. 
Yeah. Bad Sarah. <laughs> Why do I think 2000? Okay. Um, a wealthy couple, Dr. Bill and former gallerist Alice Harford, attend a Christmas party at the house of one of Bill's patients. At the party, both are flirted with, and later in the week, they get into an argument about their conflicting views on sexuality, culminating in Alice's revelation that she once considered leaving Bill and their daughter for a man she'd only seen once and never spoken to. Immediately after, a shocked Bill is called to another patient's house, and so begins an unfulfilling night of attempts to match his wife's sexual fantasy. Perfect. Um, I feel like I need to give a shout out to friend of the pod, Tony Fruin, who actually worked uh, as a very close associate of Stanley Kubrick on four of his films, including Eyes Wide Shut. Um, hopefully we'll get Tony on the pod soon, but he's just a wealth of information and knowledge about Kubrick and his process and just right down to the most incredible details of what went on during shoots and every aspect of like getting the film out. And um, yeah, he's got some incredible stories about the making of Ice Wide Shut. Yeah, um, he put, his name popped up in a lot of the articles that I read about this. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah of course. And um, I have not yet met Freddie Raphael, Frederick Raphael, who, who adapted the original book that was written by Arthur Schnitzler called Dream Story um, and he adapted it for the screen along with the help of Stanley Kubrick. I think Kubrick was also very involved in the script. Uh, I have exchanged a couple of uh, messages with him. Hopefully we'll get Frederick on the podcast too. That would be um, amazing. That would be amazing. He's a legend, absolute legend of cinema. Um, but for the purposes of Eyes Wide Shut. I'm so glad that we've included this in in the series. Uh, it was actually your idea, Sarah. I, I'm so curious to know your like thought process behind behind that because I think it's it's such a brilliant choice. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I think this film. I mean, I guess like this film has so many like aspects and interpretations, and you could talk about it from in almost any theme. I think I've always thought more than anything. I suppose that my the way that this film affected me first was that it felt aspirational. And like the reason that I watched it at Christmas is because I really love that scene where they where Nicole Kidman and the daughter are wrapping presents and they're wrapping like what must be like two hundred pound books, like huge coffee table Rizzoli books of art and things like that. And it was I think it just you know, it appealed to me so much that like I wanted to be wrapping presents, like expensive presents in like gorgeous traditional wrapping paper like that. And I the more I watch it, the more I realize like money is this kind of running theme. It's kind of it's sort of Bill's entire personality. He's kind of spends this stressful amount of money. He's constantly like he's constantly like offering, like making offers, like upping his offers you know, paying people for their time, paying people for the inconvenience. The first line of the film is, honey, have you seen my wallet? And, you know, he's, shall we talk about money? He says to the sex worker and like, you know, he, it's actually kind of all he talks about. Just, it's just money. Like this whole thing is just like this, like the, the economy of Eyes Wide Shut is enormous. Like so much wow. money passes between different characters. And yeah, I think and, and at the same time he wants to us to, like he wants every everyone he encounters 
to know that money is no object yeah. and yet it is a very clear and present object for him in terms of giving him privilege and access and he's con constantly in a way bragging about his social status like flashing his doctor's badge and mm -hmm. like that's also a commodity um yeah it is so true like and in a, in a way we could just even talk about eyes wide shut purely in the scenes even before he goes out on his like sexual odyssey purely in the scenes in the apartment and like their his relationship with his wife and daughter and like where they live um and it seems to be like Central Park West or something like mm -hmm. upper, upper West Side of Manhattan, like this beautiful affluent neighborhood. And it, it, you're right. Like it does look really aspirational. It looks very like almost like a commercial for luxury, like luxury jewelry or perfume or haute couture or whatever. Yeah. And on that point, it is really interesting to note because uh, Tony Fruin has talked a lot about Kubrick's, um, like how much thought process went into creating that aesthetic and that look. And he hired like a costume designer, or I think she was like a fashion expert or consultant to come on the set. And he would like tell her specifically what he wanted Alice to look like in terms of her clothes. He had very detailed descriptions. And she would have to go out in London and like just search for the exact precise, like down to like the choice of her lingerie or underwear or whatever. And it would have to be so specific. And it was all luxury, you mm -hmm. know. Um, he really wanted to capture and create this like specific image of wealth, but like um, kind of a cross between wealth and a bohemian sensibility of like being a bit arty because we know that Alice came from like the art world in her in her work and this is I wonder how much of this have you actually read the um uh, Schnitzler's book a no, it's, story? In, it's in that bookcase and I've just oh, never wow. got around to it um but no I've never read it it's beautiful I mean it's 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 like I feel like it's a pretty faithful adaptation apart from some like key details like the location obviously dream story was in Vienna but just in terms of like Vienna being the cultural hub of the world at the time turn of century Austria you know uh, where Vienna was this like very very enviable place to live because of its artistic contributions and how Kubrick wanted to change the location from Vienna to New York at the turn of the you know uh, 21st century because he believed that New York was the center of the universe like art uh, like in terms of the arts and culture um, so in a sense all of that becomes a commodity as well you know mm -hmm. it is it's a it's a status symbol um, tell I me read about somewhere that, oh sorry I was I read somewhere that Frederick Raphael wanted like they they'd researched how much a doctor would make in New York and they wanted to imply that his his wealth came more from like kind of shady doctoring with his like rich clients than the sort of his day-to-day -day doctor's job which I quite I liked I didn't I never really thought about it I guess you just don't really question wealth in in cinema and tv because you know everyone's everyone in cinema and tv lives in beautiful places no matter like and doesn't seem to have proper jobs 
So for like, you know, it takes a lot of watching to realise that he they probably shouldn't be that rich. Um, but yeah, what were you going to ask? Yeah, I was going to ask, like, um, what are your favourite um, things about like Nicole Kidman's character in the film, like about her aesthetic? Like what what draws your eye? Like, oh, my um, God. I mean, about- I love I love that she can look. Um, uh, I just like from the first moment you see her. She's incredible. I think probably partly because of her, I've always worn like coats that come down to the floor um, because she does look amazing in that scene where she's about to leave. And I've definitely always like, I think that party scene, that them getting ready to go to that party and then arriving to that party full of lights is how I picture in my head a party. Like at some point I feel like I should be able to have a party like that, but it must cost like a million pounds to be able to do that. Um, but just everything, like you just, the, I mean, I suppose that is her point that she's that he's kind of like money and she's just like beauty, and yes. that they're not really supposed to be. They're supposed to be quite limited characters, um, and she's clearly really actually, like you sort of get the sense that in her unconscious life she doesn't really like him very much, um, <laughs> and but, but in her conscious life she's this like perfect kind of trophy wife yeah um, but then she's having like dreams that she claims to be nightmares but that she's clearly really enjoying and <laughs> laughing and having a good time um yeah I think I what about you what do you like what's your favorite Nicole Kidman moment well I love her glasses mm-hmm. uh, I absolutely love the shape and the style I think it's classic but the one thing that always like I, I every time I see it I think oh wow that is so cool is when they're like it's a very cozy scene in the apartment they're just like talking about like everyday stuff and they're just wearing like regular house outfits and she's wearing this long black skirt with like a slit on 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 side of one leg but she's wearing like nylon socks that come up just below her knee do you remember mm-hmm. it? Yeah, I do remember. And and she and her she puts her feet up on the coffee table and you just see like a glimpse of like the, the nylon black socks and it just looks so cool. Like I don't know why that detail specifically it looks so cozy and yet chic mm-hmm. and elegant. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, like I that is my aspirational house outfit, right? There. Yeah, it's a really good one. Um, does that mean you want Paul to put on a pair of Uggs because Tom Cruise is wearing Uggs in his house outfit? <laughs> oh my god! Actually, Uggs would probably suit Paul really well. <laughs> yeah, actually, I think they really would. Yeah, I don't know why. It's something about his look. It's very like. Because Uggs are Australian, aren't they? He's from yeah. Down Under. But yeah, um, I just, yeah, I just love that um, the coziness also that was able to like come across inside their apartment because it is a very glamorous place, but also feels cozy. And uh, I recall Tony telling me that Kubrick uh, really wanted to emphasize and ex- like amplify um the relationship between the characters between Bill and Alice and of course Tom and Nicole were married at the time but he wanted to push that further by creating the set of their apartment so that it was actually functional like they could actually sleep overnight on the set and he and sometimes they did like they wouldn't bother going back to the hotel they would 
they wouldn't leave the soundstage. They would just remain on the set and sleep in their bed. And that, like, that was intentional because Kubrick wanted to create this thing where they just occupied that set all the time in that in those characters. It's a bit of a, it's kind of crazy. Oh yeah, well everything about Kubrick, how he does things, is totally crazy. Um, there's yeah. no one does that kind of thing anymore. Um, I know that's why we love him. <laughs> Um, you know, when I was thinking about this film and like looking at the other films we've kind of got lined up, we've got a few films where they they seem to be sex films, like they seem to be films about sex, but they're actually films about money or, you know, or power. Maybe not money, maybe power. Why do you think that is, that those two things kind of cross over so much? Well, to me, the most uh, obvious explanation in my mind, psychoanalytically, is that um, money and sexuality f- perform the same function uh, in the discourse because they animate and and drive forward a narrative. So mm-hmm. like sexuality and and uh, sexuality to me is not um, like psychoanalytically, psychoanalytically speaking, it's not purely in the realm of like actual intercourse. It could be anything, any type of erotic activity um, on on scale, like in, it, it can fluctuate. But the main purpose of that is that it the erotic animates us, like mm-hmm. it moves us into a discourse. Um, the absence of the erotic like creates like a, a neurotic situation where we're like stuck. There's no movement. And money is something that like, you know, is money money facilitates events, like it opens up possibilities, it drives forward the narrative. It's something that like lubricates, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> lubricates and like facilitates and um, promotes uh, eventualities, you know, events and and circumstances. And to me, that's why they're they're so interlinked. I mean, I was even at one point I had this like old. Victorian book of erotica like it was a it was like old like literature like I think it was yeah it must have been like Victorian erotic literature and I noticed in a lot of the texts where um there were like pretty graphic sex sex uh, scenes let's say sexual encounters in, in the literature the characters spoke in that uh, Victorian style and they 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 would refer to the orgasm like the moment of orgasm or climax as spending oh. always it was like every time it was like I've I they, they, they'd either say I'm going to spend or I'm spending or and I suppose maybe that's where the the current even now you sometimes might hear like I'm spent. Yeah, I actually really hate that phrase. It's on my list of like it's on my list Horrible. of um, phrases and words I dislike. Uh, I find it really yeah. gross. Yeah, it's cringe. It's yeah. really cringy. But but in in the, in the collection that I had, almost every single character would exclusively say, talk about spending and and like going to spend. And there was like this specific. Uh, signifier that to me was so connected to like money and cash and uh and I I think I feel like there is some link there yeah that's so interesting um (laughs) to you what is the like what is the the point of Eyes Wide Shut as a as a like as a story what is it what's this like what do you take away from it oh it's just 
as you say, there's so many different ways of reading it. It's it's there's such a wealth of interpretations through how abstract it is. Mm -hmm. So that's why, in a way, it's a very generous film for the viewer because you can achieve and obtain something from it every time you watch it, something different. But I feel like overall, it it is very appropriate for us to talk about it alongside a discussion of money, economics, wealth, uh, and work, because it does paint a picture of desire within those realms, Mm -hmm. like Um, And in a way, like how the desire is actually quite impotent, because even in that world of wealth and affluence and luxury and like being able to obtain anything you want on the surface, like on in theory, you should be able to get anything you want and achieve anything you want. Those characters are still left unsatisfied Mm -hmm. in their respective ways, like Bill is shocked to find out that his wife like has like once checked out another dude <laughs> and he he's like catapulted into this like existential crisis because he finds out that his wife has had desires outside of his marriage um but in a way that may be the the actual logic of economics let's say in like a neoliberal uh, context or like purely like a capitalist context of consumerism and and money affording you that possibility, that uh, privilege to obtain whatever you want, it kind of exposes the facade of that because we find out that no matter how rich, successful, stat, you know, um, status high Bill is, um, he still can't fully control his wife's desire like Mm -hmm. there's still an aspect of desire that he cannot uh dominate like he still is in a crisis because he realizes that female subjectivity and female desire is not within his realm of control it's outside of the economy (laughs) (laughs) is so I I mean that's the thing because it's not it's not his wife checked out another dude it's like the extent of her fantasy is like is so outside like logic and like safety and like all of these kind of like all of these like things that like um security like um niceness I suppose like loyalty all of those like things that are kind of like all of those like things that are sort of used to control women it's like she's never talked to this guy she just saw him and her feelings of and her feelings of not love but like sexual attraction were so powerful that she was gonna like abandon her daughter and wreck her family because just because she was like overwhelmed by these sexual desires and it's like it's that it's that totally like it's like that rule breakingness of her sexual fantasies and he like and they're so you know they she never actually does anything and he goes out all night and is like suddenly confronted by all these and it it sort of makes you wonder if it's real because he goes out all night and he's confronted by everyone throwing themselves at him like from like waiters and patients like the daughters of patients to like the guy at the hotel who's like brilliantly (laughs) who's who is that guy what's that actor oh god it's come is it alan Alan cummings yeah yeah alan cummings um and yeah he's I don't and it's sort of is it is it real that that that's what how the way everyone like everywhere he goes he's like offered sex that's um, how he sees himself yeah that's how that's how he rates his own sexual potential that yeah. like 
he should be more than enough for his wife because look at everybody else's response. They're like, yeah. they're, they're flocking to him. Yeah. Bill, maybe you haven't showed her your doctor's card recently. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the problem. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. Oh yeah, it's wonderful. But that's really nicely put. It's true. It's the extent of her fantasy. The fact that she admits that she'd be willing to exchange this incredible heap of wealth and privilege and luxury and safety and, and, and security for just one night with this guy who she doesn't even know. It's just because yeah. she fancied him in a uniform. And what does that mean for everything Bill has worked so hard to achieve? It like renders all of it almost like irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> So it's actually true, like the family structure is really important in in the like economics. Like, you know, you've got to you sort of you you do all this like making yourself secure in order to be able to like bring children into the world and have this like house with someone. And if that kind of all breaks down, then what's the point of all of this money? exactly it almost becomes comical mm. like to even have it because you're like oh actually I'm not even afforded the most basic what should what ought to be the most rudimentary component of my family mm-hmm. like you know the mother of my child my partner in life and it seems like I've just been living maybe a lie or something it's it's it's, it's a very clever way of puncturing that bubble of like um yeah, I suppose economic dominance. Mm-hmm. I feel like Eyes Wide Shut, the film goes further to prove that than Dream Story, the novel. I I, I, I feel like it's much better accomplished in, in the film, but maybe that's just because of the visual component and we get the benefit of like kind of entering into that couple's daily life and their routine and seeing things and it, we kind of vicariously experienced that fantasy and the way that it is shot a little bit like a commercial. Mm. Yeah, it looks like a Jaguar commercial. It looks like that Jaguar commercial that I yeah. use um, as my birthday reference every year. Yeah, um, that gorgeous one. We'll put it. We'll put it on the on Twitter and we'll, show you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll upload it. Um, yeah, yeah I think I read that, right. that there's more yeah. money in the film than in the book like there's not conversations about money in the book as much as there are in the film I think that was like Frederick Raphael's insertion and then you know Stanley Kubrick obviously brought it out a lot more yeah absolutely I mean Kubrick was motivated to make this film for a very long time he bought the rights to the book I believe like decades before he actually started making it um, it would always be in his, in his mind to to make this, you know, to make this film. Um, but I think I always like to joke that because we know that Kubrick predominantly makes films about male subjectivity. And I always like to joke that like he like was preparing himself to approach female subjectivity by first examining less daunting subjects such as like war, ultraviolence <laughs> and like... <laughs> and like space (laughs) um but then he finally like got the courage to summon up this more like complex subjectivity but um but even then I feel like we still are very much in Bill's headspace like we just get a glimpse of Alice in terms of this one little 
let's say, misstep on her part in terms of like breaking the spell of the marital monogamy. Mm-hmm. But what that does is that it kind of creates this domino effect, which is also like interesting because the one, the sex, sex worker's name is Domino. Um, but it creates this domino effect of like chasing the rainbow, which also is an, an important signifier in the film um, of like once the once the structure of Bill's life is put into question uh, following Alice's confession, um, he, he kind of spirals into a chaos where he's trying to redefine his own value in relation to economics. So like the fact that he ends up at this like beautiful mansion party where it seems to be like a sex orgy or something. Um, when he first appears, he's ma- he, he's covered up. You know, he's his face is covered up. No one knows who he is apart from one person, um, who like this woman who like warns him to leave. But I I always find the scene where he is instructed to remove his mask interesting, because I don't know. There's something there that is seems feels important psychically in terms of like you know when. Um, when he's at the apartment talking to Alice and they've been smoking pot and then they have that argument, whatever. And then he gets the phone call about the person who's passed away and he, he feels obligated to go and pay a visit. He tells Alice that he has to go there and show his face. Mm. And then later, and then, and then obviously there's like a erotic component to that because the, the, the daughter of the deceased man like throws herself at him Um, but then he is instructed to show his face at this party and I can't help but wonder whether it is like a nod to maybe the more superficial aspects like the the networking aspects of his job you know that he it's not enough for him just to be a GP he has to be a social butterfly he has to like work the room and like show his face at these parties and befriend certain people and foster these connections in this kind of like social economy Mm -hmm. so that he can remain relevant. It's not enough for him just to practice medicine and like follow the Hippocratic oath. (laughs) That's so interesting because recently I had a conversation with my uncle who was saying he's, you know, he's a freelancer as well. And he was saying he found, um, he found like, a video meeting so exhausting because and I was like why why do you find them exhausting and he said oh I you know you just have to like you have to really kind of like enthuse and act and like you know and emote and really kind of like show how present you are and how like how enthusiastic you are about it and how much you're enjoying it and and you know and be like much more likable than if you in the kind of shorthand that you can have in real life and I um I thought um, I don't find it exhausting at all because I have, as a woman, I have to do that in every meeting <laughs> all the time. Like, I've definitely realised, I've definitely realised owing to the misstep of having lost my temper and been a bitch a couple of times at work and people acting like I've killed a baby, um, <laughs> that it's part of my job as, like, the, as like not necessarily as a woman, but, like, as, like, yeah. an inferior person, as someone not in charge to to put a face on. And, you know, yeah. when I take a meeting, it has to be, I have to be, like, charming and funny and, like, a bit flirty, actually. And yes. 
So it's so interesting because, you know, Bill's got all of this money and he, you know, he can tear hundred pound notes and hundred dollar bills in half and hundred dollar bill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, he's kind of, he's put in this sort of, this role of an inferior of this person that's got to perform like emotional labor, the emotional labor of being friends with someone. But it's like, he's like people's paid friend. And in, in yeah. the same way that Alice sits in that apartment, she hasn't got a job anymore and she's like, and she can't be a bitch either. Or if she is a bitch, then she like ruptures their whole marriage. So right. everyone's kind of got to behave themselves behind this, behind this mask according to their status. And it's, so it's almost oh like God. a piss take of like poor people that they're all wearing masks in that orgy. Because really, like, they're the only people in the whole world that don't have to wear any masks. Like, they can be as heinous and as hideous as they want to be. And they'll get away with it because they have yeah. so much money. Um, wow, like, that is so like true. how Boris Johnson can just act like a total idiot and not answer any questions prop- properly and be, like, demonstratively incompetent. But it doesn't matter. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Mm. Yeah, spot on. I agree. Um yeah, it's true. And in a way, because Nicole, Nicole Kidman's character, Alice, in the movie, you're right, has left her job. Um, she's kind of been, I suppose, like relegated to a position where she doesn't feel as eager to put on the mask. Yeah. And she just kind of like lets her guard down and says like, yeah, it is what it is. Like, this is what I fantasized about. And she just kind of like says this provocative thing. Um, and maybe that is because like, she doesn't feel, she doesn't feel obligated to participate in that network anymore. Like Mm. she's, and it's, it's an ambivalent position to be in because on the one hand it's liberating because she can speak freely, but on the other hand, she also has put her career on hold and we get the feeling, we get the impression that she loved she loved her work like yeah. we get the impression that she did love she was good at her her job incidentally all the paintings in that apartment which we are kind of invited to believe that like she acquired through her gallery work and etc those paintings were made by christiana kubrick stanley kubrick's wife because she's a painter oh that's really cool yeah. Oh yeah, their apartments, all the art in their apartment is beautiful. It's really like it's I can't like specifically see any in my head, but you just get the impression that their apartment's so gorgeous. Um, but that's really interesting what you say about that she doesn't feel the need to participate. Partly maybe because she's got this like this sort of almost like this kind of spiritual component of fantasizing. Yeah. Um, and it kind of it enables her to kind of check out from the world. And the thing that I think people found frustrating about her performance when the film first came out is that she takes a long time to say anything um you know and she's always drunk uh, but like it seems like she's kind of over the top drunk like she's either drunk or stoned in most of the scenes and um it takes her a really long time to like get the words out but you can I really like that's actually really like from that the sort of the way that you just interpreted her character that's totally great because it's just it it, she's taking a long time to say something because she's not totally sure if she can be bothered to kind of engage in this like in the charade of these of this conversation you know she doesn't need to say things she's got like she's got this kind of inner like this kind of artistic spirit yeah um and it really says something I think both these films really say something about like about you know money as a kind of as a thing that will 
like diminish the spirit. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she's just not really like in the discourse the way mm-hmm. that maybe Bill is. And even just that final scene where they're in what apparently is meant to be like a, a toy store in New York, but I think it's Hamley's. Yeah. Um, they went inside Hamley's. It's so is Hamley's. Yeah, it so is. Yeah. Um, and there, it's Christmas and it's all this, like, it's the spirit of consumerism is like everywhere. And there's all these teddy bears and all these toys. And, you know, sh- when they're talking about how they're going to like resolve this crisis in their marriage, like, it is really interesting that she just like is actually quite reductive about it. She's like, we fuck, you know? Mm-hmm. And actually that is, it's not, I don't feel like it's, superficial reductiveness is try is actually trying to reground the subject in the body as opposed to this kind of like over investment in the like lifestyle fantasy mm-hmm. and the projected image of the self and the imaginary and the symbolic you kind of it, it, she, actually her words are really incredible like she's saying you know this all this stuff is bullshit we've just been wasting our times like we need to reground ourselves in the physiology which is actually a very freudian thing to say <laughs> like i feel like that's if freud had been strictly like a sex therapist he would have just been like telling people to fuck like that's yeah it's good advice um incidentally arthur schnitzler the writer of, of dream story the original um book that the film's based on uh, he was he was in Vienna. He was living in Vienna at the same time as Freud. Um, they lived in different parts of the city, but they knew of each other. They knew of each other's work, and they they wrote letters to each other for some time. Um, and Freud said that he was very impressed by Schnitzler's capacity to capture in literature what he had been trying to uh, communicate via theory about human psychology and desire and sexuality. So he was a big admirer of Schnitzler's writings, uh, but he said that he was uh, hesitant to meet him in person out of a fear of encountering his double. Oh, that is so weird. I know. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Freud was terrified of the uncanny. Like he was fascinated by it, but he also was like, a bit superstitious, I think, about the uncanny. So um, <laughs> I think that's kind of cute. Me too. I really like that. He knew how yeah. to manage. He knew how to manage his feelings, Freud. I think. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he didn't take risks. <laughs> yeah, Freud was a, a classic hysteric. <laughs> um, do you want to move on to the bling ring? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Perfect segue. Yeah. Okay. I'll get my synopses up. Um, based on the real-life crime story and the Vanity Fair article, the suspects wore Louboutins, which everyone in the movie pronounces Louboutins, yeah. and it's really annoying, <laughs> Louboutins. Um, the Bling Ring tells the story of a group of LA teenagers who break into the, who broke into the houses of multiple celebrities to steal clothes, accessories, jewellery, cash, and drugs. Coppola's version follows Mark, the new kid at school, and his blossoming friendship with the fame and fashion-obsessed Rebecca, who introduces him to her circle of friends and her habit of checking cars, trying the doors on vehicles to steal from the unlocked ones. Together, they begin to do the same in unlocked houses. Perfect. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I saw that um, Sofia Coppola said, said in an interview that she read that magazine article 
uh, in Vanity Fair. I think she, she was like on a plane or something or at the airport. And she instantly found it very cinematic. Like she thought that was, she was also aware of the story living in, in, in LA. And it was like on the news. She was like vaguely aware of it. But she thought that the way that the story was written and it gave like such an insight into the psychological motivations of the characters and their backgrounds and their their aspiration, you know, like their what what actually um, triggered their pursuit of these objects. Like that was the thing about the story that she loved. So it does feel really apt to talk about it in this in this sub theme. Well, I mean, Sofia Coppola, I think, is probably was very similar to these kids as a, as a teenager. Like, she had the same aspirations. She had a fashion line. I think it was called, what was it called? I can't remember what it was called, but she had a fashion line for a while. It was T-shirts oh, and things. Yeah. Um, so she wanted the same thing. Girl, like, wanted to be a fashion designer. Um, but in that very L.A. way where a fashion designer isn't so much, like, going and sticking in pins at a couture house, but, like, just, like, starting a brand and like you know and being yeah. vogue and it's like it's like a marketing thing as opposed to a sort of craftsman thing milk fed milk fed I knew it was milk something yeah milk there you go. fed yeah mm-hmm. you're right but she was one of those kids she she grew up in Hollywood royalty like her dad being who he was and like directing all these like iconic cinematic moments um and the fact that she grew up she went to like high schools with probably a lot of children of stars Mm -hmm. you know she she really had an LA life she's a real California girl um and I think that but she's also very thoughtful and like contemplative about things like this so what I love is that what I love about her and and the fact the way that she made this film is that she went straight to the source. Like she asked Paris Hilton if they could film in her house. Mm-hmm. And there was oh, no... Oh, is that really Paris Hilton's house? Yeah, that's her house. There's something about the way that those celebrity houses look that is so horrible. <laughs> yeah. Like all of the wardrobes are like, they don't have any natural light. All of the bedrooms and wardrobes, they're all like in these like dark, like recesses, like bowels of the house kind of. Um, yeah. <laughs> And they're all the same. They've all got like this unnatural. I would hate it. Like there's something about the wardrobes. They look horrible, like stuffed with clothes and like just like with like these yellow lights. Yeah. And these like and they're all like painted black. They're all like they're all, like well the walls are all black and dark and yeah. It was really it's really horrible. I can't believe that's really how people live. <laughs> like I know. Like it, her closet just looked really disorganized even though it probably was ordered but because the color scheme shrunk the space down even more yeah it just seemed really claustrophobic and like weird um and that club room was so tacky yeah um but those cushions like with Paris's face like that really is something that belongs to Paris Hilton like that that is a real object it wasn't exaggerated for the movie Paris Hilton, in the interview that I saw, um, which, by the way, if, if, if anyone listening is actually owns the Bling Ring DVD, it's really worth checking out the extras on that on that DVD because there's some fantastic content on there. There's an actual documentary with the about the original Bling Ring, like it really kind of like expands on the article, the original article. Um, there's a great interview with Sofia Coppola. There's an interview with Paris Hilton where she explains 
I know. Like where she actually explains her involvement in making the film. Like she was very generous. Because so what happened was that um, Sofia Coppola made Somewhere. Um, and of course, Stephen Dorff is in that. And Stephen Dorff was good friends with Paris Hilton. So when Sofia got the idea of making the bling ring, she used her connection through Stephen Dorff to meet Paris. And I just love how non-judgmental she is mm. about Paris Hilton. Like there was no snobbery. Like yeah. I really admire that. Like I, I'm not like a fan of The Simple Life or like Paris Hilton. Like I'm not, I'm more, I, I like Kim Kardashian more actually. <laughs> like I, I'm a big fan of Kim's, but, um, but I, I just, it bugs me when like, let's say like artists or like serious film people turn their noses up at this type of like reality TV culture. Like, I don't know. I just find that a bit unnecessary really. Cause mm-hmm. it is, I find it interesting anyway, but Coppola just was like, yeah. So we met Paris Hilton and I said, listen, I want to film in your house and you know, I want to do research with you. I want to know about what you found out through the case and blah, blah, blah. Like Paris Hilton was a really vital part played a really vital part in informing the making of this film and also just a bit of trivia before we actually start like psychoanalyzing the film so the members of the bling ring were convicted of Mm -hmm. crimes uh going into celebrity houses and like stealing clothes jewelry and cash um but they had like pretty long sentences but they were then let off on shorter time with probation because one of the officers who was involved in the original investigation ended up working on the on Coppola's film like he even appears in the film and this was like it, it kind of broke legal privilege and because of that defendant's lawyers were like this is like you know unorthodox uh, you know, this is breaking the rules and proceedings, blah, blah, blah. So they were able to negotiate shorter sentences and probation. It's oh, just so... Whoa. <laughs> yeah, isn't that crazy? That is crazy. I think yeah, this is a yeah. film that only could have been made with made by someone like Sofia Coppola. Like, I think she has, like, the access, but also, like, the background info, the knowledge to make a film like this. Exactly. And I feel like I remember at the time there was a little bit of a, let's say, like mini scandal or controversy because they were people were saying that Coppola's film was like condoning the crimes because it was just presenting them without like a moralistic take on what the kids did, Mm. which is so stupid. It's so a moralistic take, but it's not so much on the kids, (laughs) is it? It's much more like the way that the kids have been brought up. Yeah, their culture that they're yeah. living in and the values that stem from that. Um, absolutely. But Coppola was like, she, I think there's a degree of like, yeah, I think she understands these kids and she has a little bit of a, even though she doesn't condone those crimes, she, there's a little bit of a sympathy for why they would be motivated to do that. Because the, the, also where these, the original uh, bling ring, where they grew up, they grew up in Calabasas, which is incidentally where the Kardashians live. Mm -hmm. I know all about Calabasas. Yeah. (laughs) And they went to a high school that wasn't as affluent as the uh, the other local kids went to. And so it must have been very weird to like be exposed to all this wealth and all this privilege, but be slightly on like a lower 
let's say, socioeconomic level to the, to the other people that live nearby. And so there is aspiration and there is this desire to pursue the thing that you're constantly like you're 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 constantly being exposed to. Oh, I yes, I know from experience. Uh, I actually wanted to talk to you about just like the concept of stealing. Um, yes. Like what does Freud say about it? What do you think about it? And why is it so kind of reviled in our culture? Because I think sometimes. I don't know what the big deal is a little bit with um, with stealing like I because it's such a like I mean I, I, I do like I know and I also know I can see why I can see why in LA particularly like people going into other people's houses like that like the last time there was a high profile case of people going into other people's houses was like the Manson family so and it yeah. is like I kept thinking like it's like the creepy crawlies that they that Charles Manson used to take his take those girls on like they used to like they used to like practice it before they actually murdered anyone they used to practice like going into people's houses kind of like ghosts and like just being in their stuff and how kind of horrifying that is so I can understand on that on that front like how awful it is when someone's in your house but yeah stealing what 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 is what why what is why does it happen what what is it and why why are we like uncomfortable with it I mean, I feel like it's so embedded in the way, like the values that shape society. It's one of the seven deadly sins, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, it is. And or is it? Is it? A, is no, it's a te- no. Sorry, it's not a sin. It's one it's of the commandments, commandments right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. It's it, thou shalt not steal. That's it. That's what it is. Um, and but I suppose its corresponding sin is greed. I suppose, like constantly wanting more or envy. And, or envy because that's yeah. that's a commandment that you aren't you're not supposed to cover that's it that's, that's it I think that's the sort of more repugnant thing I actually have a quote that I found who who is the who, I don't know who Audrina Patridge is she was in the hills I believe oh okay that's why I don't know who she is mm. um but it was very interesting because she said she said, they took my great grandma's jewelry, my passport, my laptop, jeans made to fit my body to my perfect shape. Um, the estimated value of her stolen property was $43,000. Patridge says she believes the thieves were motivated by her fame. Rachel Lee was a big fan of me. I was her target, she, she heard from cops. She's a little obsessed girl. I got to tell you, she's going to get what she deserves. Whoa. So, oh you know, like... My great grandma's jewelry at the beginning, but little obsessed girl at the end. Like, it's not the taking, is it? It's the, it's this like sin of like being a wannabe that is so frowned upon in some way. Like, it's like the scene of like aspiring above, aspiring beyond your means that's so revolting to like the above people. your station. Above your station. Yeah exactly yeah how dare this mere mortal aspire to like fit into my custom-made perfect body jeans Mm -hmm. like yeah yeah absolutely but I feel like also psychoanalytically I mean Freud didn't write that much about criminality but what he did say about like um I I do remember something in 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 some in, in a text by him where he talks about uh theft as a as a reflection of um the person's identity like their ego ideal of what what they're trying to take out 
even illicitly, like the illicit aspect of it in amplifies the, I guess, the core of their desire in the sense that it's almost like, actually, the, the text that makes more sense to, un, to understand stealing for me is Freud's text about melancholia, where he talks about sadness in relation to consumption, where the subject devours the object that they think they've lost. Mm-hmm. And this, the act of consumption fulfills the function of incorporating, I mean, literally bringing into your body and being at one with that lost object, bringing it into yourself through the oral cavity, incorporating the thing that you believe you've lost and that then completes you. It's like there's this gaping hole. There's this like void and chasm emotionally or psychically that you want to fill with that object that you covet and you envy that's out there. And to me, it's like it's that's so plainly uh, borne out in the bling ring and, and, and in the real case as well, like in the film and in the actual uh, true crime story where these are kids that are constantly bombarded with messages of glamour. And particularly at that time, like the people that they chose to obsess over, especially like Lindsay Lohan, she actually, I can see why they would identify with her because she was kind of like, she came from like a broken family. Mm -hmm. You know, there were like some dysfunctions there and she was a genuinely good actress. She was trying to fit into Hollywood and she was a bit young and like misguided and then ended up like going a little bit off the rails. And then she had like, she was, there, were, there was all this paparazzi footage of her like having to go to court because she'd been like charged with DUI. So there was like a bad girl image there as well. And there was like problems with the law. And she stole. And, and she stole, that's right. Mm. She had to appear in court because she stole $2,500 worth of jewelry from a Southern California store. So, yeah, you're right. Like, there is this element of, like, identifying with people that, like, realistically were in a, in a very kind of relatable way, they felt like they could embody. And the stealing enables that feeling of closeness. Like, if you cannot be that person's friend in real life, mm-hmm. you could at least wear their designer bag or, like, you know, carry their designer bag or wear their denim jacket or leather jacket. And then you get that much closer to them. You get that sense of like tasting and incorporating the lifestyle that you covet and you want to pursue. Um, But also the fact that for so long they got away with it, like robbing Paris Hilton's house because she didn't notice anything had been taken. She just had so much stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's totally mind blowing that she didn't notice that you just have, I guess it's just, yeah, you just have so much, so many things you wouldn't. And you don't feel anything for any of them, I suppose. Otherwise, you'd be upset if something, if your like favorite something was gone. But if you've got like a million somethings, you can't have a favorite. Like I thought yeah. that, like especially with the Rolex watches, like this like box of Rolex watches. It's like who would want more than one thing, like precious thing like that? Because it would just make them all look gross, like yeah. all look kind of cheap. Um, yeah, it, yeah was really... it was so tacky, like opening up a box and there's like six Rolex watches. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Orlando Bloom's collection, wasn't it? It was Orlando Bloom, yeah. Yeah, it's so, it's it was fascinating. I also remember like 
the the bling ring is such a good little time capsule of that time like that time period of like what was going on what was going like what was in the news and how were celebrities like TMZ was so big um to a certain extent TMZ's feel kind of like good at like cutting edge breaking stories because they're very well connected they know a lot of people in the business so they get a lot of exclusives but one thing that I feel like has dramatically changed is that back in those days, like this was, th- these crimes were taking place before Instagram. So mm-hmm. it was like 2008, 2009, right? Nowadays with Instagram and celebrities being like putting out their own image, um, I feel like this, the paparazzi element of being pursued the way that they used to be, like constantly like harassed outside like clubs or whatever, or like chased down on the roads and people parked outside, like, you know, camping outside to get like a, a shot, like a snap when, you know, outside your house. Um, I feel like that that culture has died down because we just have more access. Like mm-hmm. we can just go on someone's Instagram and see the pictures that they choose to include. So I feel like that element of the story is slightly different in terms of like the image as a symbol of what we covet and what we what we pursue because it's just more accessibly, uh, I suppose, obtained. But still in the sense of like the lifestyle element that has not like now it's like more influencers on Instagram that have taken on that spot of like I suppose yeah painting a picture of what material objects we all should covet and mm-hmm. what we want yeah yeah I suppose they're much more like they're like a lot of them are also like they're directly selling us those objects as well so they're like much more it's they're much more kind of complicit in in the like in encouraging the coveting yeah mm. do you follow any Instagram influencers like do you have any ones that you like I don't think so um probably I mean I really like this girl Thong Ria who runs like a sex shop somewhere in the USA and I like love her she's kind of like a sex influencer um Zoe Ligon Zoe Ligon yes mm-hmm. um but apart from I mean I don't know I don't think any that would be I don't follow like any Hadids or Kardashians or anything like that like anyone that I think would really be kind of called an influencer like I'm much more looking for like film stills and pretty images than I am like mm-hmm. makeup artists I follow like be sweet I really like um mm-hmm. but yeah I don't think I follow like I don't think I follow the same people as those those characters would have because mm. I feel like I do like because I'm so much into makeup I feel like I do have a lot of I follow more influencers than I do movie people or like movie content. So I love, I love makeup artists. Um, and I do follow, it's funny, actually, I should make a slight caveat here. I don't follow them, but I constantly search them. Oh, interesting. I don't, which is now it's just occurring to me, like what that distinction one showing up in my feed but I do constantly search them. Isn't that weird? Are you uncomfortable? Maybe you're uncomfortable with your desire. (laughs) I'm very uncomfortable. (laughs) 
Yeah, like I suppose it's I find that a bit embarrassing to have it on my follower list that I follow like you know, certain beauty vloggers or whatever. There's not there's no shame in it. Like I don't see what they do as shameful. It's just that I don't maybe I'm just very image conscious and I don't want that on the record that I follow these people. Mm-hmm. But I religiously follow. There's a few that I that I follow. So I follow um Chloe Morello, who's an Aussie vlogger. She's a beauty beauty vlogger. Mainly makeup. Um, I follow... So this one's a weird one. A girl called Cezanne Hendricks, who's a Kurdish-American um, young lady who's married with a, with a kid. And she lives in, in Texas. So she mainly does beauty stuff. But she's also converted to Christianity. And she's very zealous about... Like, she's ve- she's like very very like she's always like bible bashing so oh. i'm not like i i'm not that does not appeal to me like i have no interest in that but i still find it fascinating to follow her i don't know why like her instagram is so addicting <laughs> Cezanne Hendricks, because she's really beautiful and i love her makeup tips and tricks and maybe it's because my parents are persian and persian culture is very similar to kurdish culture they're like mm-hmm. almost exactly the same so maybe there's something in her that I relate to on that level. I don't know. Um, and then I follow like, yeah, just like weird, really weird accounts that I'm too ashamed to admit <laughs> on this podcast. But it's me. There's something there about pursuit for sure. Like there is something there about, I suppose, what the aesthetic that I like. But maybe I'm not that forthcoming about admitting that I like it. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense um or that's something that I find complex and fascinating I'm just really I, I'm just so curious about how those bling ring crimes would look like in the age of Instagram yeah. I suppose I suppose maybe Ingrid goes west is a good yeah know, I it... suppose so like you don't need to break into someone's home when you can like orchestrate a meeting and be invited to it like you know you can you can really stalk someone now like in a much like it maybe and maybe yeah maybe but I also think like it doesn't matter I think that's the thing like the confusing I think in both these films this these sort of like confusing lines of like what's what's a relationship what's a friendship and what's like a transaction and I think that when you're I think as you said in the beginning of this of this discussion like when you can see wealth but you can't access it yourself I think you're Mm -hmm. always you're always I mean, I can, I can, I can totally see another, another of these happening at some point. Like, I mean, it's it happened to a certain extent with that, um, that German is she German or Russian girl who scammed mm-hmm. all of those people into, into, and they're going to make a Netflix series about that, but like scammed all of those people just not really like into anything, just like got them to all to pay for her, like yeah, at lifestyle, like it wasn't like. It wasn't like a big, it wasn't like a big, like, catch me if you can, like, no. it was just like, it, it, she just, and, and everyone was, people were so betrayed because there was a <laughs> friendship, like, because it made them feel like they were paying for friendship or they'd, you know, people get really sensitive about this, this, like, this thing of, like, the money kind of coming in, in the middle of personal relationships that you think, if you're powerful, that you think you're entitled to. 
Yeah, you're entitled to everyone like respecting you and treating you properly and being nice to you and getting you things. And it doesn't occur to you that there are people that don't like wish you well because they don't have the things that you have. And so I think like the bigger the like the more the inequality grows, like the more there will be things like this. And I think that the reason I think the reason that um, Coppola's film was kind of interpreted as being supportive of that is probably because a lot of people that watch it were a bit supportive of it. Like, yeah. you don't even notice your homes being burgled. Who should feel sorry for you? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, you don't, you're not exactly inviting sympathy. Yeah. And I think that's probably why Paris Hilton was so cooperative, because, you know, I don't think she was, like, affected on an emotional level. you know she didn't have attachment to that stuff and she didn't notice it was happening um but someone like this Audrina woman is like very emotionally affected by it on this like strange level of like my personhood and being is so fragile that you like intruded on it yeah and and uh, so I guess we've got to like give Paris Hilton credit for having so much like personhood that she didn't feel that it was diminished by people being in her house and taking her stuff. Wow, that is so true. Absolutely. Mm. She deserves kudos for that. And she says in the interview that, you know, it's one thing that she got robbed of like material goods, but the part of the event that really shook her is because she didn't she didn't know at the time that of the when the burglary was taking place but when she started shooting and she also has a cameo in the film when she lent her house for the for the shoot of the bling ring Sofia Coppola told her that uh one of the kids had been tempted to steal her her dog and we see that bearing out in the film like there's like this moment where a girl's like oh I'm gonna take her dog and then she's like talked out of it and she Paris Hilton said when she found out after the fact that there was a possibility that they would have robbed her of her dog. She felt really upset about that. Yeah. Like that was the thing that shook her because she's, she loves her dogs, you know, and she even has like built them or their own like mansion dog house. (laughs) So tacky. But the point is like, that is, you're right. Like the objects that didn't really bear on her personhood. You're absolutely right. Like there was in a way, kudos to Paris for having enough of like, of, uh, the autonomy of her identity that those boundaries were firmly in place that like material objects did not disturb that that the yeah. stability of her identity like she already kind of knew herself which I'm, I have to say like it, it shocked me to see that side of her I did I, I didn't think I guess I, I judged the book by its cover I didn't think she was really capable of that yeah yeah mm-hmm. um but actually, I, I want to also just comment on the film and because I'm, I'm, I'm following on on what you just said about like friendship and commodity and the the different perceptions that people have about like what role other people play in their lives. I love how the film is really essentially just a series of vignettes of like robberies and then the legal bearing out of what they did, like the consequences. And throughout these vignettes, there's such a lonely feeling that just pervades everything. Like mm. even, even when they go, they, they usually go in, in groups. There are usually at least two of them out on a like robbery session, right? Like burglary session. And whenever they are inside these huge houses and they're like 
hoarding all these all these things that they're stealing um you don't really see a sense of them really relating to each other it's just them i guess like rummaging through all this stuff it's like they're at some kind of like i don't know like a rummage sale or something yeah well they call it shopping they they? call it shopping so they're just yeah like it is like that like and uh, there is like the sense that there is the sense that like one of them, Mark, thinks like feels the friendship kind of slipping away the more they get, the more stuff they get. Um, and you also like, I mean, I suppose that it's necessarily um, it's necessarily quite a one-sided uh, story because only Mark, not Mark, whatever the real characters, they've all got they've all got pretend names, but only yeah. the real Mark and the real. Um, She's called Alexis, wasn't she? The, yeah. Um, the uh, what's she called character? Emma Watson character. God, Emma Watson's such a terrible actress. I know. I know. Such a terrible actress. It just about works in this film because you know yeah. you've got the impression that the actual individual was also like a terrible actress in a way. Um, <laughs> but she's so bad. She's such a bad actress, and it annoys I me know. so much. But she's like just about bearable in this film because she's supposed yeah. to be so annoying. Um, it is good casting for this, yeah. Yeah, but those two were the only ones that spoke to the press. Like they That's were the right. ones that gave interviews. So like Rebecca, whose real name was Rachel, I think. Yeah. Rachel Lee, like she never gave interviews. So like she's necessarily kind of like a cipher, yeah. um, because no one really knows like what oh. she thought or why she why she did it. Yeah. Um, oh my god, I I would really love to find out. Like I would like to see a documentary about them where they are now me too I've really I'm like I I am in pursuit of uh, Rachel Lee like that's who I want like I want to I want to see an interview with her I want to know why she did it and how she felt and how she felt about the others and whether they were really friends and all that kind of stuff that's what I'm in pursuit of definitely. oh me too me too because she hasn't given us anything yes exactly she's um, left wanting also um there's something interesting because we kind of talked a little bit about how Tom Cruise kind of um, like keeps getting sort of put thrust into this like in, um, um, submissive role yeah. in the film. Um, and sorry, that was my phone. Um, and um, in this film, Mark, like it's interesting because he like takes the Rolex watches, like Orlando Bloom's Rolex watches, which but he yeah. sells them. But the things that he keeps are like women's clothes, like women's shoes and bags and accessories and things like that. And it just kind of, it was so interesting because he kind of like, he sees power in like the these like female figures. Like, you know, Rebecca's really this real, this like this really powerful figure to him. And then like, he takes this, the things of these like female celebrities. So in this world, it's like the like, the women are like the source of all the power like the kind yeah. of like the phallic and all of their stuff is like the phallic symbols in the film so like he's like they do the same thing like they're both like sort of put into submissive oh positions God. but Mark more like Mark kind of is somehow less submissive because of it because he like correctly identifies that the source of the power is these like feminine objects um oh yeah I found God. that really interesting that is so interesting yeah, and I suppose like there is a shopping scene in Eyes Wide Shut where he goes in search of a costume. 
And even in that store, like when Bill's like checking out the capes and stuff and he, he like he uses his power and influence to get the owner of the shop to open mm -hmm. the costume store. Um, and like he flashes the cash and again, he's like using all these sort of like, yeah, I suppose acts of privilege to open the door. But once inside, it's the it's really interesting how the kind of the discourse flips because the erotic object inside the inside the store is the owner's daughter having sex with Japanese <laughs> businessmen. Yeah. <laughs> like his underage daughter. And we don't really know what the situation is. I still haven't figured it out. Like, is he like pimping her out? Or is that really what she wants to do? I think or, it's what, what I don't know what's she going wants on. to do. And then like once like a friend, like it's what she wants to do in her like, symbolic spiritual like desirous <laughs> realm like her like chaotic sex realm that like all the women in the film have and uh -huh. then like once like the men talk about it and like money's exchanged then it's all okay like it's all like oh, everyone legitimized it's legitimized and everyone's feelings are like soothed over by this like balm of money and but like it's un like yeah but like there's just so many women that are just like and like the, the daughter of the of the um of the patient who's who's died that he goes to see and she's like I love you and he's like we've never had a conversation and it's like a kind of flashback to Nicole Kidman say like being like wanting to go leave with this guy who they've never has, she's never spoken to and it's like all of these like women with this like chaotic erotic energy just like making problems and having to be like and like needing like sort of like soothing like male figures to like come with like money and security and make like make everything make sense again right so in a way it's like the female subjectivity is overflowing and overabundant and like out of control and the male presence is what is perceived to be like structuring and ordering this chaotic uncertainty this overwhelming unknown yeah and actually so, you can even yeah. see that in like the wardrobes of the female celebrities they, they spill over and there's too there's just too much stuff they're like there's been too much like at some point it means that there's there's been like too much desire there's been like an overflow like an explosion of desire and like nothing to stem it or stop it or keep it under control and then you that's where you've got these like dark womb like spaces that are just like full of stuff and mm -hmm. even like they go into Orlando Bloom's house and it's like that like his stuff is like in a little but like his only stuff is like a little box of like six Rolexes like all organized neatly and like um and um and Megan Fox's husband's like stuff is like a gun under the bed like yeah. they, they have to like have their things in like these little little like boxes of power because like there's like just an explosion of female stuff boom, like all over the house <laughs> oh my god I love that it's so true yeah it is so true and in a way like the the male character like the male member of the bling ring like he's probably he probably is like curious about the potential of the I suppose yeah the female power like somehow getting involved in this kind of chaotic situation that he can't predict what's going to happen you know there's something very seductive about that um yeah and I suppose maybe because he also says like in the post interviews like he says oh well I never like he when he talks about his appearance 
he says, well, I don't have A-list looks. Yeah. He's always defining himself in terms of the structuring discourse of Hollywood and like celebrity culture, you know? So in a way, like existing in this kind of crazy world where um, they're, they're effectively criminals and they're breaking in to breaking into that like uh, coveted space affords him a little bit of like power and like a leading male, I suppose, function. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He does function like a leading male because the, the leading males aren't that like important. Well, they weren't like, I mean, they traditionally weren't that important, like, like in terms of spectacle. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's very true. You only, and you only need like one of them and you can have like a bunch of women. Yeah. And like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's, I, I'm so glad that we've brought this film in because it's given me a chance to revisit the bling ring and reevaluate its like cultural um contribution I find it actually it's a really good it's a I, I feel like it's going to be looked at as a really good period drama definitely <laughs> like in like 50 years time it's it, it just really captured a certain mood um and how I felt sometimes going to the grocery store and seeing all these tabloids and it was all these characters on the covers and like it was such a hot mess <laughs> and it just really captures that feeling of like panicking in your pursuit you know like yeah love that cool I think we've painted a good picture of pursuit and desire yeah and it feels like a good place to stop Mm. um and we will be back uh in two weeks uh we have published the list of all of our films that we're gonna we're talking about so for those of you who like to prep um we have it on our twitter so please follow us on twitter actually um the very next one is going to be a competition, Glengarry, Glen Ross, and Crime d'Amour. Mm-hmm. I cannot wait to talk about that with you. Yeah, I'm very excited. Me too. Uh, in the meantime, uh, as usual, subscribe to us on all any platform where you access podcasts. Uh, give us your feedback. Stay safe in this time. Um, yeah, and uh, as usual, we're here for you. We love you. Thank you very much for listening. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much, guys. Bye. Bye.